But speaking of a, a, a lady who's not a mom, but who's serving God, right now Sue Messenger from our body is in Jordan uh, with a team uh, witnessing in Jordan, a Muslim country, in a very, it's in the Middle East, and she's there with a team, and they're evangelizing uh, with E3, it's an evangelistic group, and she's there right now, and we gave money as a church to support her. Her departure came up quicker than I realized, so I blew it. So we'll pray on her over her when she comes back because she's going on another trip. She goes on trips three to four times a year to go and, and spread the gospel. She's an amazing woman, but she is fulfilling God's call on her life to use her gifts, talents, and abilities to bring Him glory. And uh, so I'm thankful for her. So I'm going to pray for her right now, and then we'll uh, launch into the sermon. We okay with that? All right, good. Let me pray for her. Lord, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for um, uh, just what we've enjoyed already. God, I thank you for these songs, and, and Lord, how it helps us uh, kind of put, put what's already happened this morning away from us, and whatever we have afterwards, it's, it's helped us focus our thoughts, Lord, and to draw our affections towards you. To, to draw our minds to praising you because uh, that's why we're here. We're not here to do the religious duty. We're here because you are the God of the universe and we need to gather as your people to praise your name. You are the, the greatest thing in all the universe, the greatest person, the greatest purpose. And Lord, um, we need to do this. And so as we come together, God, I thank you for what this does to us. And, and Lord, on, on today, we thank you for the day where we get to celebrate our moms and the, just the amazing amount of work they put in. But Lord, also for all of our women, God, thank you. The first time in all creation uh, of the creation week, the first time you said it was not good is when that man was created and he was alone. And, uh, and then when you created woman, it was very good. And Lord, we celebrate that. We thank you for your grand design. And uh, we pray that together the men and women of this church, Lord, that we would bring you an amazing amount of glory. Use us for your glory, God. So, Lord, we thank you for Sue. We pray for protection for her right now. We just pray that you'd give her wisdom and insight, Lord, that she'd be alert to uh, opportunities to witness, Lord, and that you'd use her for, for your glory and for your kingdom's sake, that uh, people would hear the gospel and, and, and be drawn to you, and Lord, that they would just confess your name and surrender to you, asking for forgiveness from their sins and to find eternal life in you alone. So God, I just thank you for her example she is to us, Lord, and, and just bless her now, Lord. So we just thank you, God. And as we open your word now, glorify yourself, Lord. May the word ring true and change our thinking and our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew 17. We had, uh, he's not here today, but uh, Patrick Lockenfor brought to us uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 13, and uh, we're going to finish the rest of chapters, uh, most of the rest of chapter 17 today. Um, just, uh, it's just been fun to just keep walking through Matthew just to see uh, the glory of Jesus revealed, and especially last week in the Transfiguration. Um, before I kick into our passage, we'll be starting in verse 14 today. Um, when, I was a, when I was a youth pastor, we'd take our kids to camp. We'd do two camps a year, one in the summer, one in the winter, and camp was always fun. How many of you have been to some kind of camp with the youth group? Okay. I almost got kicked out of camp <laughs> as the youth pastor because we had too much fun. Camps are fun. 
Not for anything bad, just being mischievous. <laughs> but, the, but the thing about camp that's so good is you get people away. You get these kids away from their distractions in hopefully their cell phones and iPads. <laughs> You've got your Bible, I know. I just like picking on you. But, but they, you get away from the distractions of life and, and you get to focus and you're around people you don't know. You're with a group of friends sometimes and, and you're, you're in a situation where you can hear differently. And, and many times there's big commitments made and things confessed and it's great, but we call that the camp high, right? It's extra emotional and all that. But one of my jobs as a youth pastor, matter of fact, my first ministry experience was working at a high school camp. A summer I was a camp counselor. It was crazy fun. But one of the things as a youth pastor is that the last few days I would start preparing the kids for what? Going down the mountain, right? Back to real life. To, to start preparing them because they're making these grand commitments and all that. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but they're running on emotions. And life can't run on emotions, right? If you, if you rely on your emotions to make the decisions and, and go, you know, to figure out a path for your life and it's all emotion, you're headed for a train wreck. <laughs> you, you have to make good, rational, well-thought-out decisions and helping these kids start getting ready for real life, going back to their friends, to their normal routines, and then figuring out how to put rubber to the road, putting, putting feet to their decisions, to, to try to figure out how to practically live out these changes. That was our job. Well, last week, we were on a mountain too, weren't we? Where were we? Yeah, the Transfiguration. We've got three disciples with Jesus, and that's what we heard Patrick preach on. Three disciples go up with Jesus, and then he is unveiled. He, he is transformed in front of them, and they just fall down. They're amazed. The glory of God's revealed. And he's not like these pictures where there's a halo, a few rays. It was just boom! It's, it's a picture of the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament where, where God's glory would descend in the tabernacle, and, and the priests couldn't even go in. And then when, when Moses would meet with God face-to-face, -face, he would come out glowing like he was full of radiation kind of thing. And people said, hey, Moses, put, put a veil on your face. It's too much for us to see. Well, that's what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter wanted to stay up there. He wanted to erect what? Some tents, right? Three tents. And that's where he got corrected, right? Why did the voice from heaven, you know, it says, this is my beloved son. What did he say? Listen to him. He was trying to make a point to Peter. What was that point? Moses and Elijah, who also showed up, while they're, they're very important and significant, the key person is always and always has been and always will be Jesus Christ. So we have this a mountaintop experience, and now they're going to come down to, to reality. In, this, in the scene we'll be looking out today, we will see reality just right in their face. But we see Jesus as he's walking down, is he also tells them something that's going to bring them down to reality too after this camp high. He reveals something to them. He says, the Son of Man, he'd already told them this already, that he's going to suffer and die, but he's now adding to the picture, he tells them that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be delivered over. And, and it says that the disciples were grieved. Part of the reality they were coming back to is that suffering was ahead. And then... Jesus reveals to them, hey, by the way, if you're one of my disciples, my way of suffering is your way too. It's where he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
The life of a disciple is to follow the same road Jesus did. Now, does it mean are we going to be crucified? Not necessarily, although in the Middle East, because of ISIS, it's been happening by the hundreds and thousands. Do you know that? Please be aware of what's happening there is absolutely brutal. And there's, there's been more killing of Christians in the last hundred years than all of previous history combined. So we are very sheltered here. But persecution happens here. And, and it happens in all sorts of forms. But, but the, life, the life of victory, and I put that in quotes, the life of success as a Christian is a life of suffering. Jesus says, if the world hated me first, don't be surprised when it hates you too. If we're living like our Savior, we're going to be hated, okay? Does it mean that we go out of way to be hated? No, okay? But don't be surprised, but that's what he's saying. He's saying reality is a, is a much different thing than that, than that mountaintop high. And, uh, and so as, as we're coming into this scene, just what's happened in this passage is that first we see in Matthew 16... Before the transfiguration, we had Peter, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? What was Peter's statement? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that is the confession. That is the confession, the foundation for the church I am building. So that was the confession of the faith for his church. Then he's revealed his authority. That's where he says, hey, I'm going to the first time he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you can't do that. And what did, Peter, what did, what did Jesus say to Peter there? Get behind me, Satan. Peter just made a statement saying, God revealed that to you, this confession about me. And then the next day, Peter's, he, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so quickly. But I love Peter because he'll just say it, right? It's out there. He's out there. But there his authority is revealed. Jesus is in charge of how he's going to fulfill his mission and when it's going to happen. Then we see Jesus revealing that his followers, their pathway is his pathway. So if you want to follow him, you're going to, have to, you're going to not take this easy road for the rest of your life. It's going to be tough. Then we're going to see, we do see in his transfiguration, we see his true identity, folks. That's the true identity. That's the Jesus where he's revealed in his glory is the picture we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus as he now is. His garments are garments of victory, of reign, of power, of might. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His eyes are blazing fire. Jesus as he reigns now is the mighty king. And when he returns, he's not coming to suffer anymore. He's already done that. He, he gained victory through the cross, but when he returns, he's returning to bring judgment on those who are not his followers and to bring reward to those who are his. There's no more messing around when he returns, and it could have happen at any moment. We don't know when, but it could happen now. So we see his, his true identity revealed, and then in Matthew 17, we see that his, his mission is ahead of him, and it's going to be one of suffering and betrayal. And then in Matthew 17, 14, the scene that we we're coming, dropping down into now, we see his power revealed, and we're going to start talking about what faith means, okay? So that's, we're going to see that in today's passage. We see his power, it's overwhelming, but then we also find out his power 
that he demonstrates in this scene is accessible by those who have faith in him, okay? So that's where we're headed. Let me start reading our passage now. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they, talking about Jesus and the three disciples that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So first we see the contrast, and I've kind of mentioned that already, where we see the Son of Man and His disciples coming down the mountain, from the camp high to harsh reality. When they came to the crowd, you know, and I just kind of, you see the table up here, just kind of, I see the contrast. I just notice the scene. Because remember, my job is to remind you, when we're reading Scripture, we can't read it from our perspective first. What is the first perspective we're supposed to be looking at this from? As a Jew, that's there in that time. That's to, to truly understand Scripture, you have to read it like you're the first audience to read it. That means a first century Jew, all right? So that's why we, we, try to, we try to talk about what were they feeling? What were they experiencing? When they hear a phrase, like move, you, when you say to this mountain, move from here to there, what? Well, that was a Jewish phrase talking about just accomplishing the impossible, okay? We'll get to that in a second. But the idea is, is we have to look at the culture and, and see what they're seeing. So we've got Jesus coming down from Mount Hermon, I believe is Mount Hermon, and, and Patrick talked about that last week, coming back down to the area of Caesarea Philippi. Maybe even further down, we're not sure, but here's the deal. There's a crowd there, but there's an extreme contrast. So up on the mountain, we have the beloved son, which is? Jesus, right? We have the exulting father. How do we know he was exulting, meaning stoked on his son? How do we know that? Well, he said, this is my, yeah, he spoke audibly, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And by the way, that phrase, listen to him, that is a direct quote out of Deuteronomy where Moses is saying, hey, there is a prophet coming after me who's, who's the prophet the one you need to listen to. And Jesus, remember, we've been showing you, He is constantly fulfilling uh, Moses' life in type. He goes up on the mountain and He sits down to teach and the crowds come to Him and He also feeds them with bread that multiplies. That's a lot like manna. And so here we have, we have Jesus coming down and, and, and he's, you know, he's got the, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, the unique only one. You've got to listen to Him. And there we had Jesus. He was unveiled in glory and He was worshipped. And we know that Jesus is able because in this scene we have now, we have a sharp contrast. We have also a beloved Son, but now we have a desperate Father. And this beloved son, who's not, he's, he's not 
unveiled in glory. He's harassed. He's enslaved. He's oppressed. You just look at what this demon is doing to him. It, the picture where it says it thrashes him around, the pictures of something slamming up some on the ground, something, slamming something on the ground. So this boy is just enslaved and oppressed. And, and instead of being, you know, we've got the son who's worshipped, now we have a son who's harassed and helpless. And then we find the nine disciples who are unable to do anything about this situation. So there's a sharp contrast going on here. I mean, again, you're, you're supposed to feel the emotion. If you're hearing this, if you're reading this gospel and you're a first century Jew, you would notice the sharp contrast right away. From the glory of the mountain, where we have a foretaste of Jesus when he comes in his glory, down to the valley, the hard road of unbelief, rejection, and faithlessness. Matter of fact, we have Mark 9 gives us more because there's two, two other accounts of this very same scene, and we get more words from Luke and Mark. And in Mark 9, it says, They came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. Scribes are the Jewish legal experts in, in Scripture. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And then when he asked, what are you arguing about with them? That's when the scene starts. So we get more, more of a feel for what's going on there. We have the nine disciples. We have a great crowd. We have an argument with these Jewish scribes these experts in the law, and then we also have a singularly desperate dad. It's a chaotic scene, a sharp contrast of what had just happened. But this is going to teach us that faith grows most not in the mountaintop experiences. We're going to see that faith, especially for these nine disciples and also Peter, James, and John, so the 12 disciples, they're going to see that faith grows most in the trials, the hard things of life, the grind of life, the reality, okay? Again, that's when I was talking to the kids, I would say, look, this camp experience is so fun, and I get it, but be careful about the commitments you make. Let's talk about how we can take these 10 commitments and maybe take one of them and make it practical and, and start moving forward from there. So we've got this, this situation that's just crazy, and then we see Jesus taking control. And here we have in verse, uh, second half of verse 14, we have the confrontation, the power of the Son and man in healing this demon-possessed boy. So we have the plea from a desperate father. A man came up to him and kneeling before him, we have a humble, hopeless father. And kneeling was just a, an attitude of submission. It wasn't necessarily worship. He's respectful. Again, describes the Pharisees, the religious leaders, what was their attitude towards Jesus? It was, they hated him. Pretty soon, they're going to start plotting to kill him and taking steps towards that. But here we have a desperate man who's humbly, respectfully approaching Jesus. Then we also have uh, this enslaved, ravaged son. The word where it says seizures is the word, the word literally means uh, 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 the, uh, affected or controlled by the moon. We take that same idea and calling someone a lunatic. Luna is the word for moon in Spanish. But you get that idea? He, he's, so, he's so just absolutely, uh, when he goes into these seizures, he's like so controlled, like he's a lunatic. And people don't know what to do about this situation. And he suffers terribly. He doesn't just suffer. The word is there's an addition. He suffers terribly from what is happening to him. 
Mark 9 adds this, the demon throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. Imagine watching your son go through that. Imagine being the nine disciples and you have this kid going through all that and he asks, the man is pleading with them, with them to, to cast the demon out. And they walk up and, and the demon won't come out. Imagine, be, uh, you understand that, right? We're supposed to, what do you think the disciples thought when they, thought when they saw this? And the, the, the dad, I thought you guys were supposed to be able to do this. We have these unsuccessful disciples. Again, you understand, back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave them authority and power to cast out demons. And they had done that. They had gone out in twos, and they had success in casting out demons. But something special about this situation. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. What's going on here? But we'll see now how Jesus responds to this situation and explains to them what the main issue is. Okay, we're going to get to that. So then we have Jesus' rebuke. It's an issue of faith. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. With that word faithless just means no faith. They had no faith. And twisted, that the idea there is obviously it sounds like something's not straight, but here it is, is that it, it, the picture is of something that it, it's, there's a specific design shape and it's out of that design shape. It's like a potter who doesn't do the, the shaping correctly of, of a vessel. Distorted, perverted. It's, it's spoken of persons who, who turn away, they're seduced or misled. And, and when he's talking about this generation, is he talking about the disciples? Are they faithless and perverse? No, they get, they get a little different uh, you know, uh, address here in a second. But he's talking about the generation that's part of this, these crowds. Remember, Jesus had pronounced woe on the local cities, Chorazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. If these miracles had been done to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Tyre and Sidon, what would they have done? Repented. But woe to you. You had me right here for almost three years, and you just come to check out the cool stuff. But they, they treated him with apathy. And the religious leaders, not, they didn't just treat him with apathy, they treated him with hatred. They didn't just say, hey, you're wrong. They said that, hey, the power that you do all these miracles, because they couldn't, they couldn't say anything against his miracles. They were so public and obvious and powerful. The blind seeing, raising the dead, doing it publicly. People are amazed at what's going on here. Instead of saying that, wow, maybe this is the Messiah, they said, oh, no, you're doing it by Satan's power. You're satanic. This is a faithless and perverted generation, the generation that's there in these crowds who are following him for the buzz, hoping he's the Messiah to kick out the Romans so they can have their grand empire again. They're in it for the wrong reasons. The Jews under the tutelage of the six shepherds of Israel, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they were supposed to shepherd Israel towards God, and yet these shepherds were sick. They were trying to fleece the flock. They were, these shepherds were hypocrites. 
Jesus called them out, but it was ex- right the same calling out that Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 34 of the shepherds 600 years previous. But because these were the religious leaders, they had led the people astray. And then here comes the Messiah. These religious leaders didn't recognize him. These people followed their lead. It is a faithless and perverse generation. But even the disciples under this, under, are under his charge to some degree. Though they're not faithless, in this scene, they didn't have the requisite faith to do what they're supposed to do, right? He's going to call them out in a second, but here's the deal. This is a good opportunity for us to learn from where they failed. Then we have Jesus' cry of frustration, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And this does seem like a very, uh, like a portending uh, of, of near events because within a month or so, he ends up on the cross. From public acclaim, crowds everywhere. And then when he shows up just the week before Passover, less, less than that, five days before Passover, he shows up on the scene, he's hailed as king. Within five days, he's on the cross. Public humiliation, curse, and death. It's a cry of frustration. But he takes command of the situation. He heals the boy. He brings hope to the situation. And look look at this. When when they bring the boy to him, we find out from Mark 9 this. And when they brought the boy to him, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Again, if I'm one of his disciples and I see that happening, my first thought is like, oh, this will be cake. My first thought, okay, this is just me. Whoa, what's going on here? Right? Jesus walks up to him. Now, when Jesus shows up to other demon-possessed people, they have kind of similar responses. What is their typical response that we've seen in Scripture elsewhere? Pleading? What? What are they pleading for? Don't send me to the abyss. It's not time yet. They're pleading for mercy. They recognize who he is. And this demon does recognize, but look at the like visible, almost scary effects that he has on this boy. The demon recognizes Jesus and his power and goes crazy. But Mark 9 also helps to draw out this issue of faith. This is where the man is talking the, the dad, he says, but if you, he's addressing Jesus. He doesn't just say like we see in Matthew. He, we see more here from Mark where it says he answers. But if you can do, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The if you can do anything by the Father is responded to by Jesus. It's an issue of belief in Him and His power. And I love the Father's response. I have faith or belief, but help me in what I know to be little faith. I need you to give me more. See, the issue is not with the disciples and their ability. What is the issue? Faith. Now, is it nebulous, oh, I have faith generally? No. It's faith in specifically in Jesus Christ, His power, His authority. 
we, we hear about all these faith healers and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I'll tell you straight up. I won't name names right now, but I can give you a list of some of the few off the top of my head if you want to talk to me about it later. But when they say, oh, you don't have enough faith, that's not why you're being healed. That's, that's crazy. Faith, the faith is like its own surreal power, nebulous power. That's not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. See, here's the deal. When the apostles, after Jesus' time, or even during Jesus' time, power is on display. But it was because of who Jesus was, and it was public healings. It wasn't just in a church service over there or some special building and some special tent that they set up. It happened wherever he went. His power was obvious. And, and people, it's just funny, people would, there's one point where it says that they took handkerchiefs uh, from the apostles just to take, because that, it, was, it was belief that they were, their God was so powerful, but I couldn't make it to you. But even the object here, it wasn't the object itself, but it was because it was, a, it was attached to that apostle over there who was healing in the name of Jesus Christ. It's always because of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, there's times where Jesus healed where the person said, didn't say anything about their faith. Jesus was the key. Jesus is the key. Now, we've talked about this. You guys know Renee has, we have, you know, cancer situation going on. Could God heal Renee? Absolutely. But what if he doesn't? Does that mean we don't have enough faith? No. It means that he's in charge. He has plans for, for us that he knows what's best. And we think of best in, oh, health. No, no, no. Look, here's the deal, folks. Here, we're going to get all morbid for a second. You're all going to die. <laughs> oh, thank you. But to die is gain. Folks, every person in this world is going to die at some point, whether it's today, next week, or in 30 years, or whatever. What is best for us is not getting over the situation we're in right now for me and Renee. Would we love it? Absolutely. We're going to pray for it, absolutely. But we know He's the one guiding our paths. He's the one directing. He's the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's the one who's going to use this for His glory in our lives, in our family's life, in this church's life, and whoever else we come in contact with. We've had great conversations with several of the doctors we've already met. And one of the doctors turns out his wife is the psyche's kid's doctor. Dr. Chi? Yeah. Great conversation, and we know them from church, and, you know, we start talking about church a little bit. And Dr. Kusky, you know, we had joking around with her. She's the one that did the surgeon. We get, it's an opportunity to tell Jesus about why we have joy even in the midst of this. Do we like what's going on? Absolutely not. Are there sad, scary days? Well, sure there are. But we know God's in charge, and He could heal us. But eventually, my wonderful wife is going to pass away. Unless Jesus returns, right? But what is our hope in how long we live in this life? No, it's not. No way. Our hope is in the eternal life we have in Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Sylvia, you know, we're missing your husband, Dick. But you know what? I know I'm going to see Dick again. Dick is with our Savior. We will see Dick Heinzelman again, and I praise God for that. 
Why? Because I have faith, not in my abilities, but in Jesus Christ. In this situation here, we see it's an opportunity for these disciples to, to move to an area of understanding that their ability would always be tied directly to Jesus and what He wanted to have done. Not their abilities, not their skills, but in Jesus and His power. Paul, I mean, I love what Paul says when he came to Corinth. He says, I made it my, my goal when I came to you, Corinthians, not to come in power demonstrations or in eloquent speech, but to come and preach Jesus and Him crucified. That's the power of God unto salvation. It's an issue of faith. And again, this healing is a demonstration of His power. He's, he's coming to a situation where He's unveiling His glory. And how do I know that? You don't get it in this, but in Luke it says that after the miracle, it says the crowds were astonished at the majesty of God. That specific phrase, the majesty of God, it says that when Jesus did that, they recognized that it was the majesty of God, the greatness of God on display. It's the same exact phrase Peter uses in 1 Peter describing when he was at the Mount of Transfiguration. When I saw Jesus unveiled, it was the majesty of God. They saw Jesus do this miracle, and the crowds declared the majesty of God. There's no doubt about Jesus' power. It astonishes, amazes people. But what gets me is that they did not become followers of. The classic scene is in John chapter, I think it's John chapter 20, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. Huge crowds were there when this happened. Out comes Lazarus out of the tomb after four days. Hey, don't roll the rock away. He stinks. That's what the people said. They understood. A dead body decays. It's stinky. Jesus says, roll it away. Come out, Lazarus. Lazarus comes out. You know what happened? It says many believed in him, but it said others ran two miles to Jerusalem to tell the religious leaders, hey, you better do something. He's gaining more people. What in the world? They saw Jesus raise some from the dead, and they still didn't follow Him. Crazy. His healings were a demonstration of His power. It, it, part of this is that, you know, it says Jesus rebuked the demon. But there was, by the way, in verses 14 through 17, it, we, in our passage here in Matthew, it doesn't really say anything about demon possession until now. It was called seizures. He's a lunatic. But now we see Jesus rebuked the demon. Does it mean that all physical maladies are demon possession? Everyone say no. No. Okay. But in this case, it was. All right. So the question is, how did this boy come to be possessed? He's from childhood. So that's, that's how, that's when. But you're right. It was from childhood. So... How, how could this happen? We're not given a lot of detail, but here's the deal. Let me just give you real quick. We've already talked about this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Jesus says, hey, if someone gets a spirit cast out of them, that spirit will go around, gather seven more, and if it comes back to the house and finds it unoccupied, what will it do? Repossess the person, and the, and the, for, the, former, the latter state will be worse than the former. Meaning, if your house is not occupied by the Spirit of God... Anyone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, where you've got the Spirit indwelling you, you are potentially 
able to be possessed, owned by a spirit, a demon. That's what the Bible says. Many things, you know, I'd say in our culture, we, we label things, all sorts of things as this syndrome and that. I'll, there's a lot of stuff that we have a label for we call biological or physical. I'm going to tell you, it's probably demon possession. I have friends who've come here, Christians from other countries that come here and says, oh my goodness, we see demon possession everywhere. You guys just don't recognize it because you live here. I went to Brazil as a 12-year-old and I was like, whoa, I was in the city, Brasilia. And I saw all sorts of stuff. They're like, oh, that's only this or that or whatever. But because I wasn't in that culture, I could recognize it. We're so in this culture, we don't recognize what's going on here. Again, I'm not saying every malady or whatever is demon possession, but I I know that it's happening here. We just don't recognize it because this is the culture we are part of. And Satan is very good at disguising himself and disguising his strategies in whatever culture he's in to make it so that it's hard to notice, okay? So how could this boy be possessed? If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be. That's just what the Bible says. But what is the answer? Well, let me, let me keep, I have a few things that I kind of wrote down here about this because some people get real freaked out about it. And as Christians, you don't have to be, but we do need to know what does the Bible say about it, okay? So can believers be possessed? The answer is no. When you use the word possession as a way of meaning ownership, if you're a Christian, who are you owned by? God. You've got the Spirit who immediately dwells within you. You are sealed by the Spirit. You are guaranteed. And if God guarantees something, ain't no demon can take that away. Okay? You need to know that straight up. That's just what the Scriptures say. God is stronger than Satan or any demon. All right? Uh, There's a whole list of passages. I think I put some. Oh, good. You're seeing a lot of the stuff I'm saying here, all right? Um, But because of sin, we believers can give place to demonic attack, giving opportunity in our lives to be attacked. This phrase right here, I mean, we see this. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give what? No opportunity to the devil. Now, I'm not talking about possession, but being attacked and giving him an opportunity in your life. This word can also mean foothold, a place for him to have an entrance in to harass and to attack you. It could be that sin is doing that to you. You've given opportunity for Satan to attack. Even though we're indwelt by the Spirit, we can have sinful cravings, lusts, thoughts, and intentions in our hearts. And if we harbor them and hold on to them and, and do them, we become susceptible to attack, okay? What is the answer to those attacks? Is it exorcism? The answer is no. For a Christian, the simple thing, it's real easy, is submit yourselves therefore to God, come under His leadership, resist the devil, and what will happen? He will flee. That's in Scripture. There's, I, I was, you know, raised in the missionary world, um, you know, some of the training I got, a lot of it had to do with exorcisms and all this stuff, and, and it's, there's all these power encounters and all this, and some of it, so much of it is unbiblical. It's stories they heard. I'm going to stick to what scriptures say to do. If you are under attack and you have unrepentant sin in your life, what is the answer? Repent. Confess your sin and obey. It's simple. 
Can a believer be oppressed or attacked? Well, absolutely. By either actively engaging in sin, like just talked about, all right, or it's just part of his activities as our adversary. He has called our adversary. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be serious, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is our adversary. He's going to attack us, okay, or one of his demons, Okay, I, I hold to people that I don't think he's, my, the biggest problem in my life is not Satan. You know what the biggest problem in my life is? Chris Brunziel. We are talking afterwards, buddy. It's true. I'm the biggest problem because I have thoughts, lusts, cravings that I don't submit to God that I will dwell on. I become my own worst enemy. Okay, so we got to own that, folks. Because some people, when I, especially in the 80s, I saw this, there was like a demon behind every bush, a demon for this, a demon for that. And they were just basically putting off responsibility for their own sin and the command to confess, repent, and obey. Own it, folks. Own it. Or, why could you come under attack? Maybe God has given permission to Satan to do that. Now, I, I don't think I'm that important where Satan would have, want permission to attack me, <laughs> but it, it, we see it in Scripture. It happened to Job. Read the first two chapters of Job. Wow. Or we, we can see that, uh, where do I have Job or Peter. And Peter and the disciples, you know, just before the, the, the betrayal happened, you know, Peter says, oh, I won't deny you. Jesus says, hey, Peter, Satan has asked permission to come and sift you all like wheat. He's coming on the attack and he's been given permission. Paul was constantly under attack by Satan. And it might be that that's what's happening in your life. But what is the answer? Are you doomed? Who do you trust? Where's your faith? It's in Jesus Christ. It says that he conquered. He put on display for public scorn these, all these powers and principalities by his victory on the cross. So don't be overwhelmed or scared by this stuff. The point is that, no, you, aren't, you can't be owned by anyone else by God if you are a Christian. If you aren't an unbeliever, you need to hear this. And if you're freaked out a little bit, I'm glad you are. Because I want you to know this is real. There is a real God and there's a real enemy called Satan. There's a real spiritual world with warfare going on. And there's only two categories you're in. You're either in the God's camp in Jesus Christ, knowing His salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, or you're in the enemy's camp. You're enslaved, you're doomed to destruction and condemnation for eternity. And that's just the simple thing. And that, that's not my teaching. You just read what Jesus says. <laughs> he talked about more about hell than anyone else. But if you belong to God, the whole thing is different. But So come back to this. If you belong to him, if you're a follower, you are owned, indwelt, guarded, and he never fails in holding on to and interceding successfully for his people. So in this situation, we see the Son of Man, the Messiah, taking control of the situation 
this hopeless dad, this enslaved, harassed son, these crowds going crazy, these scribes arguing, these disciples who can't do it, and he brings freedom, healing, hope, peace, and order to this boy and now his hope-filled and faith-filled father. And then Jesus clarifies to the disciples what's going on here and what the real issue is. The power of the Son of Man is accessed by faith in Him. First, we have the disciples' question, how come we couldn't do it? This, it seems like they, it says in Luke that they went into a house, so it's probably, if they're in Capernaum, they went into Peter's mother-in-law's house, and they asked him privately. So the crowds are no longer around, and he's giving this explanation. He's training his men, by the way. He's helping them take steps of faith. When they became followers, they didn't all of a sudden have 20 tons of faith. They had small faith. But the thing about faith is that it grows, and we'll see it in how he explains it to them. Was this obstacle too hard for them? Was it easier when they first went out back in Matthew chapter 10, maybe a year or two before, but now they've encountered a stronger, higher up, the hierarchy demon? We don't know. But that's not the point. The point wasn't in how strong the demon was necessarily. It was in their faith. It was, was it too much for their ability? Well, this whole situation just serves to remind them that power comes from the object, the grounds of, the basis for their faith in Jesus Christ, not in their ability, because they didn't have the ability. Their tested faith was too little. It needed to grow. But it was an opportunity to grow. If you're having a hard time following my notes, this is how I kind of write out my thoughts when I preach. So I don't always say all this. I'm reading through this going, it's probably confusing. So just listen to what I'm saying here. This is an opportunity for their faith to take steps and to grow. The hardest times in my life have been the biggest times of growth. The biggest mistakes I've made have also been the biggest times of learning for me to grow. Right? True for you? This is for them. And he said to them, because of your little faith. Again, that word little faith, he doesn't say you don't have any faith. He says little faith. That word little, there is, it's not of, of quantity, it's of the quality of their faith. It's, it's an impoverished faith, an imperfect faith, so it needs to grow. It needs to be of better quality, you need to grow in strength. And that's just the deal. This trial, this test that they went through was an opportunity because it, drove, it drives us, oper, trials drive us to admit our need and get on our knees and become more dependent. Any pride gets exposed, our humility grows, our weakness becomes more reliant on Him and His power and His grace. Paul, God, I have this thorn in the flesh, I've asked you three times to get rid of it, and you haven't done it, and then God says, no, I've given to you on purpose. Right? What did He say? Because in your weakness, I get to show you I'm strong because grace is sufficient. My grace, God telling Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust me. Yeah, you've got this thorn, but it's there on purpose. Wow. So much for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I mean, I'm telling you, if you're listening to Joel Osteen, he's wrong. I'll tell you straight up, he's a false teacher. He denies many of the aspects of the faith. Please hear that. I know I'm not usually a name, name dropper or whatever, but you need to know this about Joel Osteen. He's so popular. He's got books. I saw him in the, and I was just saying, man, I have to say something. Paul, the man, an apostle, 
God put a thorn in his life on purpose. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was, you know, just a ter- what we'd call a terrible life. And yet he brought the most glory to God. So much for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? Their littleness of faith had shown up before. They were, remember, he called them, oh, you of little faith, right? In the boat. Oh, we're going to drown. Jesus, wake up. What are you sleeping? He goes, oh, you of little faith. So these disciples, I like them because I'm a lot like them. And they need to grow up. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's growing them. He's getting them ready. And that's what he does with us. For truly I say to you, truly, amen. That's what that word is. Amen. So be it. I'm saying to you, this is my authority. Listen up. If you have faith like a grain of sand, what does it say? It doesn't say a grain of sand. This is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed in, you know, in Israel of the time, so they understood. But what was the deal? Sand can't grow. I threw that one in there. Sand can't grow, but what does a mustard seed do? Matthew 13. It'd become a huge, some of them go up to 25 feet. This little seed, a big bush, would become almost the size of a tree. The point he's saying is that faith grows. Faith grows. A seed rooted in Christ, trusting in Him, grows. Even the newest believer, when you become a believer, Ephesians 1.3 says, you immediately have access to the riches of God in Christ in the heavenly places. You have that access. So it's not how long you've been a Christian, it's the person you believe in that gives you the power. Does that make sense? And God's going to start growing your faith slowly but surely over time. Nothing, when it says move mountains, again, that was just a Jewish idiom to say to do the impossible. Nothing is impossible in accomplishing God's purposes and plans. That's the point here. God will build His church and we get to participate. And it's going to happen because He's going to do it. He tells us, get involved with it. So we move forward, serving with all our might, praying with faith, with persistence. Right? Jesus said to pray like that, that widow. Right? That widow kept going back to that, that unrighteous judge. Keep going back. And what did the judge do finally? Granted her justice, even though he was an unrighteous judge, because she just kept coming at him. He says, hey, pray like that. And I'm not the unrighteous judge. So, and, and by the way, I'll tell you that faith is most demonstrated, most often demonstrated by how often you're on your knees. And I'm not talking about literally on your knees, but in our prayer. How often do you, do I pray? Not enough. I know I don't. I'm trying to more and more. Pray. Pray. What does prayer do? Does it move God? He has to do stuff? No. But the Bible tells us that God commands us to pray because He uses the prayers of His people to accomplish His works. Prayer is one of the means by which He will do His works if we would access it. So the more we pray, the more we get to be involved in His work and the more our faith grows because the more we see it, we're like, whoa! He did that? How cool is that? And we'll pray more. And we'll do more. Not, again, it's not up to our ability. It's His ability. He, God, he just uses us. And, and I, I do want to mention in many, of your, in many of your Bibles, some of you will have that extra verse, verse 21. There might be an asterisk or a footnote. And it, it says that that verse 
where it says, this kind cannot be driven out except by, uh, by, a, by anything by pr- except by prayer. That's not in Matthew, and it's probably because one of the scribes later were you know, trying, oh, this, this is missing here, and he probably brought it over. But here's the deal. Let's just talk about that for a second. I've already talked about it, but, but prayer is essential for the life of faith because prayer, besides what I just talked about, also says, God, I need you. God, I need you. We can't do this without you. And I already talked about that last part. I, I'm looking at my notes here. The, the crowds were astonished at the majesty of God on display in Jesus Christ. And so what for all of us? So what? Right? We always want to ask that. Sometimes a passage has nothing to do with so much like doing, but it's believing. Some of this that might apply today. We see in 17, 1 through 8, that Jesus is the glorious Son of Man, is the preeminent one. Listen to, obey, and worship Him. He alone is the object of our worship, our hope. No other gods, no other pathways to God is except through Jesus Christ. So He is the one who we seek to obey, imitate, and proclaim. So, what do your words in life say to your friends, to your coworkers? Don't answer it, but think about that. That's a so what out of this larger section. Patrick didn't get to talk, talk about get a lot get much time to talk about this aspect, so I want to bring it up. In Matthew 17, 9 through 13, Jesus talks about his pathway to victory is going to go to the cross by a betrayal by his friend. The Son of Man's victory incorporates suffering and death, so too his followers by dying to self and following, imitating, serving him. Are you ready? Am I ready to face the ups and downs of life? the trials, the suffering that is part of following Him, including rejection and ridicule for His name's sake. That's something that comes out of this. Are you ready? Are you in it for the easy stuff? I wanna, I'm a, you know, religion is good for me. It's good for my kids. No, it's not. You're raising Pharisees. Last slide. And then from our section particularly, the Son of Man's power is accessed not by abilities nor by trying harder, but by our growing faith in Him his power, his authority, and taking on his mission. Is your understanding of, your pursuit of knowing Jesus growing, it's supposed to say growing, are you seeking to grow or are you stagnating? Again, I've said this again and again and again. If you want to grow as a Christian and you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to grow. You need the meat of the word to bring, to bring solidity to your faith. You need content so it can get into your character. You're, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. That was what Jesus says. Sanctify means grow and change. What's, oh, are you passionate for him or sidetracked by the pursuits of life? Your career, money, security, acceptance, or comfort. Any one of those things are a longer list. Are you Actively asking God, God, make me have you as my, as my passion, my, my, my pursuit. And then the question is, if you really, you're saying, okay, yes, I want Jesus to be my number one pursuit. What does your devotional life say? Are you setting aside at least a part of your day to get into the word and prayer? Because if you're not getting into the word and you're not praying even a little bit, you don't want to grow. You don't. I don't if I'm not doing it. 
I struggle with this too, by the way, you guys. If I'm doing this to you too much, please know. It includes this guy too. Gosh. What's getting in your week this week that needs attention? Is there something you know, hey, I got to deal with this. I know it. I've been holding on to it. I, I like this sin too much, but I know it's getting in the way of my walk of faith. Or what's growing your faith right now? And how can we be praying for you and with you in this? Is there something going on that's helping you grow? It might be a trial. It might be a good thing. But let us know so we can participate. We can pray for you and pray with you and and walk with you in this. All right? Some things to consider here. May our faith grow in Jesus Christ. May we pursue Him. May we love Him more. May we want to know Him in His Word, and because of that, He changes and grows us. Let's pray. God, thank You for uh, what, we, what we get to know about You. Lord, thank You for uh, just, <laughs> in a way, calming the storm of this crowd and, and answering the plea of this helpless, hopeless Father and, and healing His just enslaved, ravished Son by this demon. God, thank you. Thank you for what you taught your disciples and Lord, the hope it gives these men who are with you for three years and still they needed to grow in their faith. We need to grow and God, help us to grow. Help us to have a faith that goes from from weak and impoverished to, to stronger and stronger so that we could trust you more and serve you better. Lord, may you be our number one pursuit. May, may that grow in us We love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for our time. And in Jesus' name, amen. And yeah, I went over time. Surprise, surprise. So uh, mothers, I hope you feel special today. I hope you get a call from a a child that's not there with you, maybe out of town. I pray that the people around you give you hugs. I hope the the rose that we passed out maybe makes you uh, feel a little appreciated. but I, I pray this is a good week for you. And, and again, I, I have one bit of item that I have to do. It's part of the church life. Um, some of